summoned the Scream Writers Podcast, the premier podcast welcoming both veteran and up-and-coming horror screenwriters slaying their craft. <laughs> and now, your hosts, Ariel Relaford and Patrick Mediate. Welcome to the Scream Writers Podcast. I am Patrick Mediate, New York and June on Twitter, and I'm joined, as I am every week, by the sublime Ariel Relaford. Hey there, Ariel. Hello. I'm Ariel Relaford on Twitter, if you want to give me a follow there, too. Yes, please do. And we are in our home stretch here, Ariel. We have only a few episodes left. How many we have left? Like four episodes? I'm not even something around there. I mean, if something special happens and we have to get a last minute guest on, we'll do it. But we are rounding the corner uh, to the end of our first season here on the Screenwriters Podcast. It has been a a doozy of a season. It was so much fun, right? I mean, we're going to be back in the fall. But like, I had a blast. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. Every episode's a freaking blast. I'm going to really enjoy these last few that we have left, and, and they're going to be spectacular. We've got a great guest on today. This is his first uh, screenplay that was made into a, I would say, pretty hit horror film, uh, at least on VOD right now. It's uh, it's called Willie's Wonderland. Have you seen it yet? I have not. I have not seen it yet. I, I saw it the first night it came on and uh i was just floored by it his name is geo parsons absolutely fantastic screenplay he sent it to us actually a few days ago we took a look at it it is it's not only fun to watch but it's a fun read which is a true testament of a great screenplay this was his first screenplay that hit and what do we call those first screenplays ariel in the biz they're called spec screenplays spec spec screenplays and i believe it stands for on speculation but essentially what they are is it's it's a writer's first work that they put out into the world and these spec scripts are essentially like the try i guess they're the calling card i would call it for your trip into hollywood and if your spec screenplay is good enough and grand enough you too could be a working Hollywood screenwriter, right? Yes, yes, yes. And the fun um, thing about spec scripts is it really has your voice. And as a beginning writer, you most likely want to write specs so that you can find your voice and develop it. Yes, absolutely. And that's why a lot of writers that have gone on to make it and become really working writers in Hollywood all say that you're going to write a lot of screenplays before you develop your voice that's really what it's about and i found this for myself too it wasn't really until recently and after like 10 screenplays that i really started really coming into my own and developing my own feel and voice for my own scripts and and it really it's true that spec that hits is gonna is gonna be the true version of your voice exactly and and i think the first like actually this this history of the word spec and like it started with one of my favorite directors so i've read in the lore and myth of spec screenplays by preston sturgis and preston sturgis is like i said he's one of my favorite directors but writer directors i guess back in the day but supposedly started in like 19 back in 1933 and he sold his first spec script 
and Fox bought it. It was called The Power and the Glory, and they bought it for $17,500 plus back end, which means um, an upfront payment and then back end revenue from like the sales after the movie and see what happens. And, and if there's any you know gross revenue from that, then they get a cut of that, those back end points as well. The movie I heard really sucked. Um, I haven't seen it, did bad at the box office, but you know, now it's in like the, the preservation and film history and the registry and all that. Preston Sergis obviously gone on to do amazing things. But you essentially take this spec script and you sell it to a producer, of which we've covered this on past shows, is called optioning the screenplay. And that could be an amount of any type, ranging from $1, uh, actually ranging from free, free option, to millions of dollars. I've seen spec scripts that have gone for truly millions of dollars in like bidding wars. Have you heard of like a, a spec that's gone for a lot of money? Oh, yeah. I think Gone yeah. Girl was one of them. Gone Girl, right? And the Another one is um, was The Weatherman. I don't know if I've talked about this on past shows, but there was a screenplay that I read when I was a reader back in Hollywood called The Weatherman, and it was uh, it got into this bidding war. It sold for like six figures or something. The movie went on. Nicolas Cage was in it. It was a little bit of a downer movie. Uh, I, I didn't really care for it, but you never know what's going to hit, and it, and it did really well with Hollywood's execs, so... Anyway, you could sell your spec script for a lot of money. Don't do it for the money, obviously. Do it because you love to be a writer and you love to write. But, uh, of course, if your screenplay is great, the money will come, and that will be a nice little perk for you. But anyway, going back to uh, Geo Parsons, Geo did this screenplay called, at the, originally, looking at the title of the screenplay, it was called Wally's Wonderland. I guess there was some issues with... Um, the name, we'll talk to Gio about that, but uh, it turned out to be Willy's Wonderland. Nicolas Cage is in it. So we can't wait to talk to Gio about how this came to be, what it's like selling his first spec screenplay in the business, how he was able to do that, how he got Nicolas Cage involved. So many, I have so many questions, Ariel. So many questions. So, well, then uh, ask away. I, I'm going to ask. Yeah, we need to get him on ASAP. So what I want to do is I want to get Gio on right now. I want to ask him some questions. But first, give him the grand introduction as we always do. So here are we go. We're going to keep this short and sweet. Gio is a graduate of UCLA out in California. You're familiar with UCLA, right, Ariel? It's a great sure school am. out there. It's uh, kind of known for uh, the film, the film uh, students. And actually, so we've heard... He also came from the stage play world, so we got to talk to him about that. We'll have to delve into it. Willie's Wonderland could actually be, like we said, one of his first, if not the first, screenplay that he's done. We'll have to figure that out. And it just so happens to be one hell of a freaking horror movie. It's so good. My favorite horror movie this year, not to like diss any of the other of my favorite horror movies like Mortuary Collection, so on and so forth, but this movie kicked ass. We're excited to hear all about his journey with it. So, Gio, welcome to the show. Welcome. All right, Ariel Patrick, thank you guys for having me so much. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here. Um, loved the film. Uh, obviously, we're in the same boat as uh, half of all horror fans or more of all horror fans that have seen the uh, film so far. It's just so much fun. Such a blast to watch. T tell us first a little bit about your your journey when you first decided you wanted to write uh, screenplays and the road that ultimately 
led you to Willie's Wonderland? Sure, happy to. Well, it started out in acting class. I moved to Los Angeles in uh, the end of 1999, 2000 to go to school at UCLA. And while I was going to school, I started taking acting classes. I had actually uh, gotten a job working commercial casting where I was running sessions. And what I used to do is anytime someone came in or there was a role that matched my profile, I would always just hit record and then run in front of the camera and do the audition to try and like just get myself in there. And it worked. <laughs> I love that. It worked a couple of times. And the casting director goes like, oh, you know, she was, she was a great person. She was like, oh, listen, we hired you to run the session. You're putting yourself in. I'm like, if you're going to do that, just get yourself a commercial agent. I'll get you one for you. Just stop doing that. And I was like, okay, yeah, please. <laughs> so she hooked me up with a, a commercial agent and the commercial agent took me on with the stipulation that I had to get in, in an acting class. So I, I, I searched around and I found one that really, um, connected with me. And I started taking class there, but it was expensive. And as you know, as most people listening to this can relate, like taking writing classes, taking acting classes, art classes to better yourself, there is a cost to it. And not all of us are making a lot of money. Uh, so what I did was I, I bartered with the gentleman that ran the studio and I said, Hey, you know what? I, I will assign scenes to people in class. You know, I'll read through all the material. If if you let me take class for free and he, he didn't want to have to do that. So it was a great uh, deal on both our parts. And it was a great way for me to learn scene structure and to learn script writing and just to learn how to formulate a scene because there was, I don't know, 60 people in the acting class three days a week. And I would have to find scenes for them every two weeks. So I was reading scripts all the time and I was reading different scenes and trying to come up with interesting plays and movies that people could do. And I would always mix it up. Like you sometimes go to acting class and you're doing like some heavy duty Shakespeare scene or some really intimate drama. But the truth is when you're an actor or writer or, you know, somebody in the arts, those aren't the parts that you are going to get auditions for. You Mm -hmm. are going to get auditions for uh, girl number two who is running away from animatronic ostrich. <laughs> that's the kind or, of or, or like tree number one. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You don't audition for the stuff that you practice for. You practice for like heavy duty scenes and then you get one line as the waiter. So yeah. my theory in doing that stuff was always try and find the weird thing that you wouldn't necessarily practice for because that is that's what you're going to get an opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. So in doing this, reading all these scenes and putting up scenes, that's kind of where I got my feet wet with writing or with, with acting and, and, and with writing too, because as we did these scenes, it dawned on me that I could probably do the same thing. Like I was having fun doing other people's things, but I would like to do my own. Uh So I would start writing scenes for the acting class and giving them out to the actors as like untitled pilot one or, uh, the man with, a giant hat. <laughs> I'd come up with weird, the weirdest titles that I could, and I would give it to the, the, the other kids in acting class because they didn't know. They would just think, oh, this is some pilot that was never made, but it's a good scene, and I'm going to put my heart and my soul into it and work as hard as I can to build the characters out. And as I saw people doing that, I saw that they were able to elevate what I had written on the page. And that mm. was like my first that's, – that's something that I, I think a lot of writers should understand – is you should, 
when you have a draft of something, give it to your actor friends to do, to put up, and to actually run through because you will see that how they are able to uh, take your scene and and make it magical. They mm, will so find, smart. That's yeah, so they, smart. They will find different ways because you're you as the writer are programmed to think the scene should be done like A plus B plus C, and that's the way the scene should be done. But when you give it to a different artist and we give it to a different actor or actress, that person can say, no, the scene is supposed to be Z plus J equals Y. And then you mm. watch it and you're like, oh my gosh, it, it is Z plus J equals Y. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we, so then I started thinking like, okay, how can I, um, broaden this out? Uh, so I started putting up, uh, plays. I would do runs of plays that I would write. And it was very much like La La Land in that I would rent out a theater and I would do like a three-week run of a show. And Friday night, we'd have one person. And Saturday night, there'd be two. And Sunday, there would be one. And that person would be on their cell phone the entire time. And Mm. we would be doing the play to an empty audience. Wow. And so I I think to myself at the end of the run where nobody's showing up and nobody's coming to these plays, I think to myself – you know what? If I look back at the entire attendance, it was probably, uh, you know, 85 people in the three weeks that we did it. And wow. if I could get, yeah, it, it, no, this is the way that like, if you're listening, if, if you're listening in Los Angeles, you'll know this. This is just the way it is. It's a play in Los Angeles is it's, it's more of a, a chore. Like you get like, and what I mean by that is if I asked you to come to my play, I'm not doing it like it, it, you, it makes it feel like a chore when it shouldn't. It should be like, I want to go see this person's thing. But hmm. for whatever reason, it comes under this banner of an obligation and not fun. And that's where I want to change things. So what I did was I rented out a, a bigger theater. Instead of doing the small theater that I was at, I just rented out the biggest theater I could on an off night. And then I would say, listen, everybody, we're going to do this one night Okay, one night for the next three months. So you have you have to come, you know, just come, bring your friends, bring your family. We'll have booze, we'll have snacks, we'll have whatever you guys want. Just show up that one night. And it worked. It became more of an event than a show. People would come just to hang out and to party. And I was able to fill that 99-seat theater and even get more people. We'd put them on the stage, you know, and then we'd do the plays. And this is another uh, important part that I stress to the audience of people listening is if you are if you are a screenwriter and you're trying to make movies or whatever, you should take your work and put it up in front of a live audience somehow because their reaction will inform your notes. Hmm. If one person laughs... Three people can laugh. If three people laugh, 10 people laugh. If 10 people laugh, you can get 100 people laughing. And if you get 100 people laughing, then you're on to something. Mm-hmm. So that's, re- I, that's really great advice. I mean, it, it also skips so many steps, right? Sometimes, for I guess for established screenwriters more so, you get a script, and then you get greenlit. Then you get into production. Then you're on set for the first day, and then it's there that this stuff gets worked out. But you can actually, to your point, work this stuff out far in advance before you even take it anywhere and even either pitch it anywhere, you know? Yep, Patrick, you're 100% right. And you can also kind of like take your lumps too because you can see what works and what doesn't. You know, you can think a joke is really funny in your head, but if you put it up in front of an audience of 10 people and nobody laughs, maybe it's not that funny. Mm -hmm. You can rethink what you're thinking. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So I did that. I was doing those plays every couple months, and it was really going well. And after one of the plays, a friend of mine comes up to me and says, hey, listen, plays are great, and what you're doing is fantastic, but as soon as the play's over, it doesn't exist anymore, and nobody's ever going to know you did it. You want to further your writing career, you're going to have to make a movie. Mm. And that was years ago, and that's that was in that parking lot. That was where I, I came up with, okay, time to do what would eventually become Willy's Wonderland. Didn't have how long any, ago was that? How, how many, this, how many so years I ago was doing, this? Yeah, this was a long time ago. I was doing the wow. plays, or the plays hit their like, height probably circa 2012, 2013, around that wow. time. Wow. So that's like when Willy's kind of first started marinating, right? Like that's Is that where the seed of the idea started all the way back then? Yeah. Wow. Exactly, because it, because it you know it's it's it wasn't an overnight thing. So what I what I, I needed to figure out, and I, again I was working on acting there at this time, and I was working on uh, on just you know we all have jobs to stay alive. I had a job to stay alive. I was doing all that kind of stuff. I needed to make this movie, but I didn't have any money. I don't have any connections, and I don't have like a power agent. I have nothing. You know, I'm just some guy who's who who has his imagination. So what I did know was how to do a play and keep it in one location. So I thought, okay, I'll do a movie. I'll keep it all in one location Mm -hmm. and I'll make it a horror movie because horror movie, everybody tends to be forgiving about. It is a genre that can be done low budget and will still get a lot of fans and people will really like it. So I thought I'll keep it low budget. I'll keep it a horror movie. And I was always a fan of like B movies from the eighties and nineties. I was, I was the guy that was at Blockbuster all the time looking for like the movie that nobody had heard of that you couldn't believe existed. That was you and me both. Me. Yeah. You know, I was <laughs> invasion of that. like the blood farmers and those kind of movies, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, like there are kids today that will never know the joy and the experience of going into a blockbuster and going through the aisles and and touching like a VHS with a plastic case on it that's been a little bit yellowed and a little bit broken that you can squeeze the VHS out of. I mean, that's Ugh. that's an experience that that doesn't exist anymore. It's but too it, bad. It's really too and 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 you know, um, Ariel as well hasn't experienced that, right, Ariel? <laughs> Ariel's a young I have. I'm not that young. You, Come on. <laughs> you, you remember video stores, Ariel? Like going yes. through the 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 uh shelves and and uh plucking oh, the Oh yeah. Really? And I accidentally got like a bad movie one time. <laughs> Went for Disney, got something okay. with Paris Hilton. So. Oh okay. yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that when people used to just switch them up and then nobody really check them. Put the tape on it, yeah. <laughs> that happened to me once or twice. Exactly. It's funny when it's the other way around though. It's the horror movie and like the, you know, Stuart Little Box. Oh yeah, of course. You'll, it's like yeah. Dead Alive and Stuart Little. That's that's. What? Yeah. And then you go, you drive all the way home, and you're like, now I gotta go all the way back, and then they don't have it. Oh yeah, yeah I dealt with all exactly. that. That's exactly what yep. happened. Um, so yeah, so then I had so I wrote the screenplay, and then um, and the 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 draft, the original draft I wrote was pretty much what everybody saw on in the movie. What it what happened was I then tried to raise some money via Indiegogo and. And I had seen a bunch of people that had been extremely successful friends of mine and raising thousands and thousands of dollars to do feature films independently. And I tried and it just it did not really work out as much for me. I put the majority into that Indiegogo anonymously, hoping that I could like build the pot a little and people would be like, oh, he's almost there. But it didn't really work out. So I did, however, get like about a thousand bucks maybe a little bit more than that of uh, donated money, which is fantastic. So I was able to use that to make a short film called Wally's Wonderland. And in Wally's Wonderland, I went to my friend's garage out in Upland. I dressed 
my buddy up in a big like weasel costume, bear costume is what it looked like. And then we shot the scene of that's in the movie where Nicolas Cage is mopping. It's the very first animatronic and mm-hmm. Ozzy the ostrich, which, which was the actual one. I just that was impossible to build. Uh, he comes up and I poke him with the broom and then it roars to life and I just beat, beat him up, beat him up, beat him up. <laughs> so <laughs> does I, he say like I, I'll feast on your soul yeah, or whatever? He does. does yeah, he, he does. That's I'm a feast on your face, <laughs> <laughs> which was so, you know, I'll tell you <laughs> I love that line. I'll tell you that line reminded me. I don't know if you had inspiration behind that line, but it reminded me of um, Evil Dead, where she yeah, says, absolutely. "I'll swallow your soul." Yep. It had that feel. You know, it was. It's great. It, oh, t- totally. Most of the lines the animatronics say are a homage in, in some ways to, yeah. to several horror films. Awesome. So let's see. I, I shot that, and then I had that um, video, and I just started emailing that out to whoever I could find just in Hollywood. You know what I mean? I just like, I, I just, I just started blind emailing people trying to tell marketer style with just saying, Hey, I got this cool video. Check it out. And because it was in the the link, you could just click on it and watch it real quick. If, if you were interested. So I was, I was hoping just to get some clicks. So I sent that out to, I don't know, hundred, 150 people, maybe more than that and did not get any responses except for one, a lady named Kaylee Marsh who runs the Blood List, which if yes. you're a screenwriter, you Her. would uh, be familiar with. And she saw potential in that short and wanted to read the screenplay, which was extremely cool. So I sent her the screenplay. And she got back to me in like that night um, and just said, hey, this is really neat. I think the screenplay is really well done and could be something fun. Uh, would you mind if I put it on the Blood List, make it a fresh blood select, and, and maybe you can use that promo to get it out to other people. And I said, absolutely. That would be so fantastic. So she did that for me and put it on as a fresh blood select. And I started emailing that out to everybody, (laughs) you know, like I I was undeterred by my first 150 no's and started going right back at everybody, just sending them, Hey, uh, it was called Wally's Wonderland at the time. Wally's Wonderland is a fresh blood select. Check it out. Wally's Wonderland, fresh blood select. Check it out. I sent that out to everybody I knew. And I got a call from a casting director named Venus Kanani, who was a friend of mine, and she said, hey, Gio, I, I saw uh, your email, and uh, I read your script, and I think that if you could get this into the hands of um, someone of some stature, you could have an actual movie here. Hmm. And I how, was, how far how far along was this? You know, um, after you originally first had a first draft of the yeah, screenplay, how how long down the road? Yeah, it's probably been you know years at this point because I had written the script and then you know got focused on something else and then decided to go back to it. And I re- yeah, so it had to be at least a couple of years because I kind hmm. of uh, had a point of like trying to do you know just trying to do other things or whatever. And my uncle had called me up and said, you know, just basically kicked me in the butt and said, Hey, if, if nobody does it, you have to make it yourself. And that's what encouraged me to do the Indiegogo stuff. So mm. it had been a little bit of a, a time period uh, between when I first wrote it and when it got to her. But at that time, when it got to her, I was going full steam, just trying everything I could because I, I think I was at a point of like absolute desperation. Like I, I tried so many things, both acting and writing, and it wasn't working out. Like literally I, I gotten told no by just about everybody and everything that I did. No, 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 no. And it just drove me to the point where I was like, okay, if, if I I don't do this, then I'm just going to, you know, I have no other option. Like, 
it's either this or die. You know, mm-hmm. like I have well, to there do was no have to there do. was no giving up. It was there it was, was no yeah no there was no backup plan because I moved right. here like I said in two thousand and nine or yeah two thousand nineteen ninety nine or whatever. It's been mm. fifteen sixteen years seventeen years at this point and like wow. I got nothing to go back to. I've, I've I've been pretty much better at all, so this better work. Yeah. Um. So she says, "Hey, get it to somebody some stature." And I, she's like, well, I said, I don't know. I can't get it to anybody. She's like, I can get it to somebody. So she calls up a gentleman named Mike Nylon who ends up producing the movie. That's Nicolas Cage's production partner and his manager. And she says, hey, Mike, you got to read this thing. It's written by my friend and it's really good. And he was not one that just takes a recommendation lightly. It's not like, I mean, he's Nicolas Cage's uh, manager and they get six scripts a day from like, the top people in Hollywood. I mean, like he, he is the, one of the biggest movie stars in the world, but that recommendation, you know, worked and he read it that morning, which is like a Friday morning. And he really dug it. And, and he said, you know what? It's cool. I'm going to give it to Nick this weekend to read. I find this out. And I'm just like, you can imagine just like sitting there staring at the wall staring at the floor like pacing back and forth like just waiting as the hours ticked away and monday morning uh, like 10 o'clock 10 30 something like that i get this phone call and it's like yeah nicholas cage wants to do your movie <laughs> amazing absolutely amazing and so that's how it goes from you know all the rejections all the people not like getting back to me all the no's that i heard to all of a sudden like all it took was one yes and he was in. And then I will say that that's not the end of the story because just because you have like a movie star attached, you still have to find financing for the film. And if you if you haven't seen the movie, then I encourage you to see it. But I'll just say like Nicolas Cage doesn't say anything. So the lead star has no dialogue. It also turns it on its head where he doesn't he's not afraid of these things. He never once shows any fear towards them. He's never running and hiding. A lot of people that would read it as like potential financiers would go like, well, this doesn't fit the formula. You should be running. You should be hiding. It does not fit the formula of a normal horror movie. And, uh, you know, to Nick's credit, he was always like 100 percent on my side. Like he was like, hey, this is what you got is right. You know, what mm-hmm. you're doing is yeah. right, and yeah. this is the movie that we want to make. So if these people don't want to make it, we'll find somebody else that will want to make it. And eventually it, it finds itself in, like, the right home with the people that believe in it, and it gets made. Yeah, <laughs> so he so he was very much uh, became an advocate for you, for the, for the screenplay, for the film, correct? Like, he, yeah, he, was, he, was, he was an advocate. There's never been another person in my life that's not, like, directly married or family to me. Mm-hmm. That has 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 believed. Well, you know that it's not my best friend or my family. You know that has believed in me as much as he did and protected me as much as he did. When he didn't have to, there was there was he has a million other options. There were there were times where things could have fallen apart or or gotten that di- gotten difficult, and he was always the person that was like, figure out a way to make this movie. Mm-hmm. You know what it happened was like. And we were having trouble finding the financing, and I got a call in like September or something from Mike, and Mike was like, Gio, listen, we got this one month in February, and then he's going to be off doing all these other things. Please mm. figure it all out. Everybody's got to figure it out. He wants to do this movie bad, so you know, let us know what we can do, what you guys right. can do on your end, and everybody kind of was all hands on deck to get it all secured, and it, it, it worked out. Absolutely, absolutely incredible, and it's 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 amazing to hear that he was such a like again an advocate for for the story, and he believed in it. And I personally think it was 
probably I, I I'm gonna say I, I guess I'm biased because I just love this film so much but like I really think it was his best move he's made in quite a long time to be in this film I I just thought it was a terrific career move for him and it's such an I it's it's really I mean like it's the movie's only been out for a little bit but I I feel like it's iconic you know there's just something about it that is so fresh and and unique and and iconic feeling I I don't know how, how else to say it well, no, thank you. That's, I mean, that's, it's extremely kind. I think that what we wanted to do was make it as memorable as possible. So like, if you love it or hate it, it didn't matter. You had to see it. That was kind of like a thing that we always talked about. Yeah. Um, we wanted to do something like that. We wanted it to be unforgettable. You know, that was mm-hmm. kind of like always the drive with unforgettable, have scenes that people will remember for years and talk about for years. And again, I think the reason that, and we, we all experience this as writers of just like going through notes, like you'll, you'll do a pass and then it'll get, you know, watered down a little bit and, and then you'll go through another note session and it'll get changed for the, for good and for bad. And I'm not knocking this by any means, but I'm saying the reason that it's so weird and that so many things are done in it that you'd think like, how did that get past the censor type of thing? <laughs> it's because Nicholas Cage was the, the bodyguard for it because he was like the first person that said yes to it. Right. He always had the gravitas to be the blocker. So if somebody was like, Hey, there's this scene in it where the, the janitor was, has been held at gunpoint and, and locked in this room with uh, two animatronics and basically left to die. And the sheriff goes outside to make sure that he does die. And literally 10 minutes later, he walks outside with garbage cans and the sheriff sees him and he sees the sheriff and he just gives a friendly wave to her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, great. like, how do you get away with, I thought about like, when I was watching that movie. I was like, how do you get away with that? You know yeah. what I mean? And uh, it's yeah. just because he blocked, he, he was the blocker the entire time and he believed in it the entire time and nobody was going to tell him no. So uh, that was really cool. Uh, you you touched on something, and I, I had a question f- for you that I was going to ask you later on, but it kind of ties into this. But how much of what Cage did on film the, in Final Cut was in the script on the page, and how much of it was improvised? I'd say about 90% of it was in the script. There was 10% that I would say was improvised as far as the pinball machine dancing. Like the pinball machine, he always had his breaks. And during the breaks, he would play like video games and things like that in the script and drink his, his, his colas, but punch pop as it's called. But the, the dance that became so iconic was Nicolas Cage. Cause so we, we wanted it to, instead of change, cause we had just one studio, like one set that we were basically shooting on. We couldn't change it up to go from the arcade to the whack-a-mole or anything like that. So we just made it this pinball machine, which was a great ad. And then he wanted to win the pinball game and then do his, his dance, which was fantastic. So mm-hmm. that was definitely an improv that he added. The character that he created was uh, fantastic. And this is one of the things I talked about earlier with plays. You know, you imagine it one way, but then you see an artist do it a different way, and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think the way that he played the, the janitor was different than I imagined it, but much better than I imagined it. So mm. just, just in his mannerisms, 
he listens to authority, you know, a little bit. Like the, he gets his job and he just understands what he has to do. When the sheriff tells him something, he kind of nods along and just he doesn't fight back against her, just kind of goes along with it. Where I think in the uh, script that I had, I always imagined him a little bit more like stoic or mean. But no, he's the way he pulled it off was fantastic. Yeah, but that's what's so interesting uh, and compelling about the character of the janitor is that he you know from the very beginning he drives the the SS Camaro he's a tough guy like he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would take anything but the what, him showing restraint you know in throughout the film and 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 being almost obedient and following the rules and just getting the job done makes him such an interesting character cuz you wonder you know how does he temper that right like how does he it's almost like you see him one way and it's like your perceptions on the out exterior are this t tough, mean guy who drives this like badass muscle car um, who doesn't take shit from anyone. But then he's actually really uh, follows the rules. He's very kind of straight edged in that capacity. So it's it's a little bit of a complex character there. Yeah, totally. There's that scene where uh, uh, Liv grabs the knife and she sees Siren Sarah when they're on stage and she says something like, that's the bitch that tried to kill me. And she mm. runs at it with a knife and the janitor just grabs her and picks her up and says, hey, no, you can't do that. It's because it's because he realizes that he's on the hook right now and he can't have these kids d destroying the animatronics without right. like some just cause. Right. So, yeah, yeah, so sure. that was like that was he, he was very obedient and following the rules and doesn't want to get in trouble with Tex. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And he also has heart. Like, I think. I think that's a it's subliminal, but I think I, I absolutely 100% actually believe that the reason why you love his character so much is that he has this underlying uh, beneath this hard exterior. He's kind of you can kind of feel like he maybe just a, he kind of has a sweet side, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and, a, and a nice side, and a, it's something about him. No, absolutely, and and here's the, you know one of the tricks of uh, and it, it's a it's a screenwriting screenwriting podcast and I and it, one of the one of the things that we're always taught is character development and one of the things that I wanted to do with the janitor character specifically was go the exact opposite route and give you know give give everybody no information. So you you do not know this person's background. You don't know their story. You don't know anything about them. And if you do that, then you know everything about the character because you can use your imagination and you can and put whatever history you want behind it you know, behind him. So everybody that watches the movie can have a different backstory for who the janitor is, why he went there, where he's going, so on and so forth. And I think that's pretty cool. I think that's the one thing that I, I've heard people talk about is they will have discussions on who he is, why he was there, what he's doing. And I talked to Nicolas Cage about this too. It's like, if you give away anything about it it kills the mystery like you always want the mystery the mystery kind of drives your imagination so if we put it all out there and said oh well the janitor is like this ex-army soldier who is trained to kill animatronics and he went there to get revenge on his son you know like that kind of oh okay well then now we all know and now it's not as fun anymore but if i just say he is whoever you believe him to be that's always pretty cool and everyone can and can make their own hero of him yeah it is yeah and 
What were your motivations and inspirations behind the concept for Willies? The motivation was to turn a horror movie on its head. So we have all seen the millions of horror movies where the villain is always the boy until the end. Like the vil- the villain gets whatever he or she wants, right? Like she will kill the entire uh, school until the last kid is able to figure out that if you shine light in the witch's eyes, she can't, you know, she's harmless or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like, um, you know, Friday the 13th, the kids run away in the, in, the, in the camp until the last person uses some sort of trick in order to defeat Jason. And I wanted to change it so it was like the horror movie villains, in this case the animatronics and Willie, messed with the wrong person right off the bat. <laughs> like, <laughs> like right off the bat. Like I, I'd be watching horror movies. We talked about going to the blockbuster and watching all the 80s and 90s horror movies. You know, I'd be watching these things and I'm like, why doesn't anyone ever just throw a punch? <laughs> and so I think that was the biggest inspiration was like, let's have a character just fight back and let's have the horror movie villain mess with the wrong person. And then as far as the inspiration as to the animatronics, well, if he's going to be fighting back, he needs to be fighting back against a certain like trope. And what are tropes? We got we got zombies, right? We got uh, vampires. We got ghosts. And I didn't think it would be as funny to fight something that we had seen a million times before. I had gone to a place called Boomtown, which is um, on a, on your way from California into Nevada before you get to Reno mm-hmm. in northern Nevada. There's a place called Boomtown that has um, a family fun center where parents could drop off their kids uh, while they went and played craps or blackjack or whatever. And Boomtown had all these things. So when I was growing up, I would go to Boomtown for my birthday and there was the mini golf and there was the motion scenes and the animatronics. And I thought that like seeing somebody beat up an animatronic would be really, really fun and be really, really funny. Cause you know, if, if we see Nicolas Cage and he's like beating up a human being, there's something viscerally unattractive about that to me. But if it's like curb stomping a gorilla on here and all, it's really funny and fun. <laughs> so that was kind of my inspiration of it. Like two, twofold. Number one, have it, have it, have the twist of the villains missing with the wrong person. And then number two, have those villains be something wacky enough. So when, when the, the janitor does start punching them, it's not a viscerally bad reaction. It's like an excitement roller coaster fun ride brilliant yeah the animatronics oh my goodness they scared the crap out of me too uh <laughs> geo like I- i'll tell you i've always been scared of animatronics we have this place uh over where i am in connecticut called Stu leonard's and Stu Leonard's is the world's largest grocery store. Don't and you diss Stu Leonard's? I, it's I'm not dissing it. I it's okay. fantastic. They have great produce and so on and so forth. Okay, but watch yourself. When, when you walk through the store, Geo, there are animatronics everywhere. There are large stages with like Willy's Wonderland animatronics playing guitars and chickens and weird things and animals and cows. And something about them always just scared me. So I think maybe that's why, you know, I I was actually terrified by this movie in a lot of parts because I imagined being a kid and I had something weird going on in my head about like just imagining how scared I was of those animatronics. One of the things that uh, Kevin and I talked about, the director was 
bad Easter bunny photos. Um, the the Ellen does it every like Easter where uh, it, she shows pictures of kids with these Easter bunnies, and the Easter bunnies are literally like like what you just described, just the scariest things imaginable. <laughs> but it's funny to me that the people who are in the Easter bunny co- uh, costumes and are taking the photos think that it looks really good. You know, they're happy with like, yeah, yeah, this, uh. this works. And uh, no, they're absolutely terrifying. And so that was a big deal as far as uh, in the script, I always wrote them as matted and dirty and, and gross and, and, and frightening. <laughs> uh, but they couldn't be frightening as in they were designed that way. They had to be frightening because they had become so withered. And it was important to us when the movie goes from script to screen that those animatronics are visually frightening because if it just looks like somebody in a uh, mascot costume and their shirt is hanging out of the back of the thing, it's not going to, it's going to be ridiculous. So uh, mm-hmm. that was always something that everybody was on the you know page one about was like the animatronics are the second star or the thing. They have to look fantastic. No, you, you nailed it. I mean, for something about these animatronics, it was almost like you visited like the Chuck E. Cheese or like, the Disney World kind of thing, and just just kind of molded them after that. Did you did you do any when you were doing it? Like any? Did you have like them in your mind when you were writing them, or you just kind of? Yeah, uh, they evolved. Yeah, we had uh, we we had. Well, this is another cool thing by Nicolas Cage was, um, well, the director and I had always talked about like what they should look like. We went back and forth with just trying to figure out, um, you know, how exactly they should look. And then Nicolas Cage came up with this idea. He He's into reptiles, he's into amphibians, he's into dinosaurs. He used to own this like dinosaur skull and got taken away from him. So yeah, he's, he's very he's, he's he's in a tour when it comes to that stuff. And he pointed out that mammals have been done to death with these animatronics, and he hadn't really ever seen um, a chameleon or a turtle or an alligator as an animatronic. He thought it would be really fun if we just changed the species on a few of them. And it worked out great because that's what we did. We we just changed the dog to an alligator and the rabbit to a chameleon and uh, the penguin to a turtle. And, and those kind of changes, I think, really aided because he was right. We had never seen those kind of like creatures or, or who would come up with having a, a, a chameleon be the, the cuddly creature on stage. And so that was that was his big add to it, too, was just changing the species so that we thought that was that was really cool yeah that's awesome can you tell us more about your collaboration with the producers and the director kevin lewis yeah well kevin and and i had always kind of seen eye to eye from the very start of it like from when he first read the script he got it it was weird because a lot of i i've, I've you know i said i've been sending this thing out and nobody was reading it or if they did read it they would be like i know he got it. He got all the jokes in his head immediately and knew what it was supposed to be 100%, just, knew, just understood it, kind of like Nick understood it. And it was a fine line that we had to walk because if you go too serious, then the movie isn't fun and it doesn't make any sense and it's not going to be the thrill ride we want it to be. If the movie is too comic-y or gimmicky or or Nicolas Cage is looking in the camera and winking, you know, it's also not um, going to work. It was like this one in 50 shot where he pointed it straight down the middle. Like, we know this is an absurd situation. We know we shouldn't be taking it seriously. But everybody 
is and that's what makes it funny <laughs> like like he has to beat up the ostrich and then immediately go back to filing his nails because like what <laughs> it has to be like that so kevin knew right away that you know all that stuff had to had to it had to have that tone and he nailed that right on the dot and then the producers and the the people that i came aboard to like i'd say the producers and the the, the cast and the crew let me just say like about about them and their work ethic. Work ethic is extremely important, right? Because this thing gets greenlit coincidentally on October 31st, 2019, but it has to shoot February 1st, 2020. So that's three months to get wow. everything ready to go. And November, obviously, we're going into the holidays with Thanksgiving and then um, December, you know, December 15th, basically everything shuts down for the rest of the year. So it was this all hands aboard rush from the producers figuring out, you know, where to shoot, uh, building the sets, getting the creature creators hired, finding the cast, finding the crew, everybody moving a million miles a minute. And if we make one mistake and it gets delayed, this whole project can literally fall apart. Think about this is like we we got all that stuff done and the movie gets shot and it gets finished February or I'm sorry on on March 1st. Well, March 3rd or 4th or 5th is about the time when Corona started becoming a reality in the United States and everything shut down. If we had started two weeks later, our movie would have been shut down and I don't think it would have been able to come come back. And then wow. another thing that's interesting about making a movie in the time of the pandemic is everything changes. So you're not able to go to one location with everybody, all the producers and the creatives and look at the, the edit and go like, make your notes. It has to go one person to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. And it slows everything down dramatically. And everybody's in a different room or everybody's talking to each other over a computer screen. It was a, a you know, of my first, this is my first movie. So it seemed, yeah, okay, this is just the way it is. But to those people that had done it before, it was like, oh, this is a brand new world the adventure oh yeah i can only imagine absolutely did you have a strong presence on set no i didn't have a strong presence on set i had gone to germany to help a brother-in-law who was having his third kid he had, he had two kids already and uh so uh, my wife and i had gone out there to make sure that everything was going to be okay and to be a, a helping hand out there nicholas cage and uh, kevin had control at that time and they would send me updates or I get updates from the producers and it was like everything was going so well. I never was worried about it. It was just like I talk about in the play, like once if you've written something, once it's on stage and the actors are doing it, it's like now you got to sit back and just be a spectator. And that's very much the approach that I took with uh, Willy's Wonderland is once everything went into production and began, I just was more of like the biggest fan I could be. Let me know what I can do to help. And obviously I will. But Nick and, and Kevin, the producers, they all had it handled. Yeah, that's that's a testament to how I think strong the script was and the vision was um, that you weren't really called on during production to like do a lot of or any it sounds like uh, rewrites or major uh, edits to the script, right? Right. Well, we didn't have, there wasn't going to be anything like that because there was no time for that. Like the, yeah, like the, yeah. like the, the way, think about, this is another thing that's wild about Willy's Wonderland. There was only one animatronic 
of each animatronic, right? So there's eight really? animatronics total. So that means there's eight suits. So once a suit was destroyed by Nicolas Cage, it didn't exist anymore. Oh my so God. the schedule of the movie it was such a logistics nightmare because it had to be set up so that once the animatronic was destroyed, it was destroyed for good and you weren't going to use it throughout the rest of the day, throughout the rest of the shoot. So there wasn't any time to do any sort of rewrite. There wasn't any time to do any sort of major change that would it, it could not happen the way logistically it was set up, which as the writer of the film was fantastic, you know, like because you want to see what you've written there up on screen. And the only things that were kind of changed were just because of budget. Like I said already with a pinball machine, like he was he was going and he was playing different games and stuff. But when the, the reality is if we just keep it in that kitchen with the pinball machine, that's going to make a lot more sense. I think during the final fight with Willie, I wrote in a scene where the janitor runs up the wall and does like a backflip and stuff like that. And Kevin, <laughs> awesome. Kevin called me up and he was like, dude, we ain't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> does, he, does Cage do his own stunts or like, did you have a stunt? Uh, did they oh, have a stunt double? Yeah, he's got this awesome stunt double, uh, nice. uh, Lorenzo. He's, 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 a, he's a cool dude and he does he does now Cage does a lot of the stuff in there, obviously, but mm -hmm. some of the more heavy stuff Lorenzo was doing and he was just, I mean, that dude, number one, he's built. And number two, yeah. he's fearless. So it was, yeah. it was really yeah. cool. Yeah. You you mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier on in our conversation, but, um, you know, that you worked on stage plays. And, and I couldn't help but thinking that Willie's plays out a bit like a stage play and actually could be a stage play if you wanted it to be because it mostly takes place in like you said in the one set location kind of like an evil dead um which was in fact made into an off-broadway musical um they did do a, an evil dead musical so do you think your work on stage plays sort of transferred into when you wrote willie or did you truly just write it because it was the, the simplicity of what it would be to produce and to actually make or a little bit of both it was it was both. There's a reality to being a scriptwriter, and there's a reality to wanting to get a movie produced. So you could write the best movie in the world, but if it costs a hundred fifty million dollars to make it, it's it's going to be very difficult to get it made. Mm -hmm. If you could make a movie that was in that two million dollars to five million dollar range and keep it all in one location and keep it just thinking like if you were running a business, could I? could this be an investment that I could make money on, then then you have a chance. So that's what I would encourage people, if, if you're out there screenwriting, to think about. Don't think about it so much as, oh, I, I want this to be like a big spectacle. Think about it as if you were the producer who's going to make this movie, right? Number one, is it is it feasible to make it? Meaning, do you have minimal locations? Willie's Wonderland and then like a couple others. So check, check. Do you have somebody that people are going to want to naturally be drawn to scene? Do you have a movie star that can carry the movie? Nicolas Cage. Check. Is it a genre that people are going to be interested in? Horror, thriller, action, comedy, you know, check. And so that's what I would say to any aspiring screenwriters out there that are like, how, do I, how am I going to get my name in the door? Well, keep the budget low write a role for a movie star and then have it be in a genre that people are naturally attracted to. And it's just going to better your odds. I'm not saying that you're not going to be able to hit that, that $150 million movie. Please. I hope you do hire me. Um, but I, but I think like my advice is 
if you are able to transpose your movie as the play, then you'll probably be able to keep that budget really low and find somebody that will invest in you and invest in the picture. It's fantastic advice. Yeah, it really is. It's something that, you know, it's, hey, sorry to interrupt. It's something that we do not think about. And I say that as, as a writer and as a creative person. We just decide, hey, I want to write this crazy story about whatever, and I'll write it down. And, and you know, if, 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 if that's fantastic. And I think everybody should do that. But also you should have in your, 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 your quiver one of those stories that's just, Hey, this is this is like a two million dollar movie, and we could get a really like a star that could, because think about this is like Nicolas Cage half the movie half of Willy's Wonderland was funded with foreign sales, so we would go to like a film festival and we'd sell the distribution rights to different countries, and the different countries would go, okay, what is this? Oh, it's a horror movie, and it's got Nicolas Cage in it. Okay, well we'll give you X amount of money to distribute it in <laughs> in France, and we'll give you Heck X yeah. amount of money. You know that's the way it works. And if you're a screenwriter, you have to understand that that is the way it works sometimes. So to make sure you have those elements in your script, at least your first one or your first two, so you can get your foot in the door. You need to get your foot in the door, and that's just a way to do it. And when you approach a screenplay. How do you usually work? Do you outline first or do you typically jump right in? Well, both. I think that uh, I've done I've done it both ways. Sometimes I'm just hit with inspiration or desperation in the in the case of Willie's Wonderland where like I was just desperate at Willie's, so I was just writing it. I was just I just I would just write, 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 write. I didn't think about what was going to happen next and I just kind of put things in there and it it fell into place. I have done other movies or written other things that I did outline beforehand where I was like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you I did, I did one uh, recently called The Treasures of Trap House and, or Trap Manor, Trap House. I didn't know what a Trap House was, my innocence. People were like, Trap House? What is this? I was like, oh my Trap goodness. Manor, I changed the title. <laughs> I didn't know, but it's like a treasure hunt in a haunted house, right? And for that one, I did outline it out because there's like a lot of puzzles and because there's a lot of riddles and I needed to know where each one led as far as a maze throughout the house in order to get to the vault and, you know, ultimately uh, get to the end of the movie. So in that case, I did. I think that there's no wrong way to write a script, right? It's, it's like the, the one piece of advice I will tell everybody. Well, as far as outlining goes, as far as writing goes, the one piece of advice that I give everybody all the time, and I give it to myself more than anyone, write one page a day. Doesn't matter if it's good, doesn't matter if it's bad. If you write one page a day, then in 30 days, you're going to have the bones of a screenplay. And you'll be able to, you know, rewrite it from there. But if you just write, and it's so easy, we don't think about it, just writing one page a day. How long does it take to write one page a day? Maybe you lose an hour of sleep, or maybe you're inspired and you write two or three pages that day, you get done even quicker. But as long, it's like, it's like a sport or like a, um, or like a craft. The more you practice it, the easier it's going to get. It's like working a muscle and writing is very much like working a muscle. It's like me doing these podcasts, like. I've been, I feel like I've been yammering on a lot here, but when I first started doing them, I was like, yes, no, you know, but the more you do it, like the more the muscle gets used and it's the same thing with writing. And so if you stick to the, the strategy of like, oh, I wrote my one page today. And then by the end of the week, you've written seven. And by the end of the run, the month, you have 30. It just kind of will always inspire you to keep doing it. And it's not putting a lot of pressure on you if you can't, if you get that writer's block, if you're not sure where to go with your story or with your characters. One page a day. 
So true. So it's great advice as well. We always ask one final question uh, of our guests. The question is, what scares you? What actually scares you? I think the thing that would actually scare me is just giving up or quitting on my dream. I think that actually scares me, uh, you know, as, as far as anything, you know, more than anything, because like you only get one life, right? And if you want to go after something with it, then that's, that's what you got to do. And so I think it would scare me to be like, mm, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to move back home and, and, and go after, you know, something else or something safer. I think that that is something that scares me. And I think that not getting what I want or achieving my dream is also something that scares me. And it's why I was so desperate and it's why I work so hard. So as far as like, yeah, I'd be scared if like I fell out of an airplane without a parachute. Absolutely. But you know, I think everybody <laughs> could relate to that. I think that as just a, on a personal level, it would be, you know, not going after what I wanted to go after in my life. And to even right now, you know, it's like I, I, I got this movie made and it was like, a, you know, something that I worked extremely hard for and, and, and didn't give up. And now I've done it. And now what's next? You know, it, do I just, you know, I don't want to just rest on this. I'm talking to myself personally. It's like, I don't want to just rest on this. I got to figure out something else. I want to do another thing. And, and it's not like, it's, you know, it's, it's not like my, it, it's cool. You know, like I got, if it, it was explained to me, like, Willie's Wonderland gets you in the bank, but you don't get to rob the vault. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like, you, 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 okay, you got in, but you're still not there. You always got to work. And no matter what level you're at, there's another stair you got to climb. And then there's another stair you got to climb. And it's one more challenge after the next challenge. And so I, I think you, you just have to embrace that and, and know that you're, you know, you're in it for the long haul and, and you got to go after it. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that there is uh, an, a sequel to Willie's Wonderland? Because uh, the ending is a little bit open-ended, just saying. I mean, I would watch a sequel to this film. Just, just throwing <laughs> yeah, it out there. You, know, you don't have to say too much about it. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? If like, yes, I want there to be a sequel. That'd be fantastic. Well, you know, well it's great. in your head. You know, you oh, got to yeah. get it on you the know, page I've, now. I've thought about that, you know, because people ask me and they're like, hey, is there going to be a sequel to it? I want a sequel. I want a sequel. And I think to myself and part of me, what scares me, it's like, why does this have to fall on me? <laughs> <laughs> with great power oh, comes great responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Like, come up, come up with something else. Well, listen, if there's going to be a sequel, you know, you'd want to... You you, you got to have the janitor. Does the janitor oh, yeah. go on? Does the janitor go on different adventures? You'd want to see that, but also the animatronics have become very popular. Especially there's a there's a group online that just does all the fan work on them, and they all have their favorites, and everybody like loves this, this particular one. So I don't think you could have a Always Wonder Always Wonderland two without bringing those guys back. And so you'd need, you'd need a new uh, set of challenges for the janitor. You need to bring, you know, your animatronics back. And then, you know, we told the joke once. What was the joke? Oh, he just cleans the place up and he doesn't say anything. If we do that again, it's not as funny. So it's like, think of another joke to come up with. So these are, these are all things that I bat around in my head. And uh, while nothing has been green yet, lit yet I, I, I do believe that I will get a phone call and it, 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 it very much could happen. Well, I kind of want, him uh, the janitor and live to kind of 
partner off. I I feel like they have good chemistry. Yeah, you know, and she's like, yeah. I think yeah. they can ki- both kick ass together. Like, if, yeah, I mean, they if if they take on like triple the amount of animatronics, like I think they could both <laughs> take them on together, like and do a little tag team kind of like a rush hour, but like Willy's Wonderland style. Definitely. I well, I had a, I had a, like I thought about something a funny joke. That, this is this is definitely not going to be it, but like, j- <laughs> like it starts out with the the, j- the janitor he's walking out of like some Toastmaster event as like head of ceremonies or something. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that would he's be a, great. <laughs> <laughs> he like loses himself, you know. It's just, this is not um, him. Oh man, that's uh, so great. Uh, anyway, thank you again, Geo, for coming on the show today. It was just. We're really honored to have you here. Uh, Willie's Wonderland just dropped. I mean, it just came out a few weeks ago, and it's probably going to be on demand. Wor- well worth the price of admission. I know, like a lot of the on demands, people are saying, "Oh, it's just so expensive, twenty dollars for the on demand." But no, I mean, like this would be in a theater, right? That's the only thing that kind of stinks is that you, there's no. What was there no theatrical release? It didn't get a theatrical release, right? It, it there it's you know because it's different. Like I'm, I'm in California, yeah. so all the theaters are closed. But there are yeah. theaters uh, throughout the United States, uh, limited theaters that where where you can see it. But the thing is, like, listen, you can. I know twenty dollars for the the video the video on demand price. Well, if you got your, let's say. Mom, dad, your friends, uh, yeah, yeah, and friends and stuff like that. That people that you're you've been been quarantining with or whatever. Hey, everybody puts in five bucks. It's actually not that bad. No, and the movie's meant to be watched like that. You know, it's like meant to be watched with all your friends, and so you guys can laugh at it and have fun with it. Like definitely, just do it safely yeah. from your home. You know. Yeah. Just that, or we, I went to a drive-in. There, a bunch of drive-ins have it too. Oh, so this is a great. Cool. This would be a great drive-in film. Um, yeah, everyone I, was honking their horns oh, and stuff. Oh, oh my great. God. So much fun. I, I just am. I think the one thing I regret for seeing this film in my bedroom by myself is that I, I couldn't see this in a theater full of people all having a great time because this is one of those kind of movies that you just it's meant to be seen and shared with others. Yeah, um, and, and to just have fun with a, with a group of people. So highly recommend uh, everybody get, get together, do it. I know the Blu-ray comes out, right, April 13th. I was super bummed, like, after to see that the Blu-ray release didn't, you know, coincide because I'm a huge Blu-ray nut, and I love just, I think it's going to look terrific, um, you know, in, in the format. So uh, I'm, I'm, like, kind of, you know, marking the calendar days down till April 13th when the when the Blu-ray comes out. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> so super exciting. Uh, anyway, thank you again for coming on the show and much luck. Hopefully there's a sequel. I'm going to cross my fingers. But if there's no sequel to Willie's, I, I know that the next the next film, the next screenplay that comes uh, from Geo is going to be incredible. So uh, hopefully um, you, you make many, many more to come. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Ariel. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And so concludes another episode of the Scream Writers Podcast. As we said, we're winding down in the first season. Got a lot of fun stuff coming your way. In the meantime, go check out our sponsor, 1428th Street. 1428th Street has stuck in with us all year long, creating great horror art for our fans, for our show. Uh, You can find them by going to Facebook, 1428ST, heading on there putting a little knife or bat or whatever you want to design as your horror art in your basket. And then once it's in your basket, you can use code SCREAMWRITER at checkout. That's code SCREAMWRITER for 15% off your order. Go check them out. They are doing great. They're super busy, but they always have time for our fans. And until next week, Ariel, where can everyone find us on the social nets? 
If you aren't subscribed already, you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like Twitter, you can find us at ScreamWritersPC. If you like Instagram, you can find us at ScreamWritersPodcast. And if you have any questions or want to be on the show, you can visit ScreamWritersPodcast.com and fill out our contact form. And I can't stress this enough. I just want to tack this on. Also, if you love us on Apple Podcasts, write us a little review. Click on that five stars. We, we Just rate us. I mean... You, there's no better way to show your love, right, Ariel, than to like click on those five stars if you really like the show and write yeah. a little little ditty for us, maybe a little haiku. We'll we'll take we'll take whatever we can get. Ooh, haikus would be nice. That would be nice. Yeah, I'd we'll love to that. see a little haiku, a haiku review. Please do. And until next time, keep writing. And stay scared. <laughs>